Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neighborly Navigator podcast. I'm Natalie Connell, your co-host, and I also have our host, Jason Rusnak, president of Neighborly Software, here with me as well. Hey, Jason. Hello. Hey, everybody. So we have a great show for you guys today. Um, we're discussing the road to resilience and advocacy for community development, affordable housing, and disaster recovery at the state level. Our guest speaker is Josh Shoemaker, who is the Director of Advocacy and Federal Programs for the Council of State Community Development Agencies. He's gonna share some key insights on how states are advocating for these programs with federal policymakers. So before we get started, I'd like to add just some additional color to CASDA. Um, we, first of all, we just attended their annual conference a couple of weeks ago in New Orleans, and it was fantastic. Um, this organization represents the role of states as the premier voice of authority to Congress and federal agencies. It provides critical leadership in the development of funding, legislative and regulatory strategies, and implementation and programmatic issues related to housing, economic, and community development programs. So with that being said, I'm going to hand the mic over to Jason so we can get started. Thanks, Natalie, and welcome, everybody. Uh, as Natalie mentioned, I am your host, Jason Rusnak. And I'd like to welcome our guest, uh, Josh Shoemaker. Uh, so as Natalie mentioned, Neighborly Software supports CASTA and the important work that they do to advocate for state and federal government partnerships uh, for all of our housing, economic, community development, and including disaster recovery programs. So welcome, Josh. Thanks. It's glad to be here with you all. Excellent. Josh, let's, uh, let's just start with the most basic of questions. And again, it's a running theme here at Neighborly Software, a big debate between those that prefer fries and those that prefer tater tots. Where do you land on that uh, important topic? Tough question to answer. I have to go with fries. Just, you know, uh, kind of the old reliable uh, burger and fry companion, um, uh, burger and hot dog uh, companion there, you, you, you go with fries. Very good. That's. We're, we're getting a lot of fries on this uh, podcast here, which is good though. Um, we're, uh, we're, we're exploring and I think, I think fries are definitely in the lead thus far. Uh, but let's get back to uh, kind of the topic at hand here. So, you know, CASDA does a lot of work um, on the Hill um, and advocacy work for states. Uh, obviously there's a lot going on, especially in DC. Can you give us kind of the lay of the land on some of the advocacy work and legislative initiatives that you guys are, are involved in? Absolutely. And I appreciate the question. And, and again, appreciate the chance to, to talk through this today. We are a Washington, D.C. based association, national association. We work on behalf of state community development housing agencies. And uh, we primarily work uh, in conjunction with the HUD community planning and development programs. Um, these are programs that I'm sure uh, folks listening have, have have heard of and are, are uh, maybe working with uh, Community Development Block Grant, the Home Investment Partnerships Program, Housing Trust Fund, um, the Homeless Assistance Grants, which includes the Emergency Solutions Grants, um, and then also the uh, Disaster Recovery Funding that HUD administers, which is the CDBG Disaster Recovery uh, Dollars. Um, so our primary goals on advocating uh, for states on housing and community development needs um, is to ensure that the federal funding aligns with what states need and, and the constituents they serve, which are primarily small and rural populations and communities, 
Um, so we are uh, continually advocating for increased uh, appropriations uh, for those programs, CDBG, HOME, uh, as well as the homeless assistance programs. Um, also, rules and regulations responsive to state and local development administration. This is critical to ensure that there, uh, the, the funds can be um, can reach beneficiaries uh, both in a timely manner as well as in an effective manner. Manner, and there are certainly things that we can get more into today um, on both the congressional front as well as HUD um, to uh, improve those that program delivery. And then also uh, increased capacity training and technical assistance, uh, which includes uh, information technology. And our folks, and you know, speaking to neighborhood software today, you all understand the importance of having that IT um, development and, and resources there. Uh, we see that there is a big need um, with these HUD-funded programs to um, better bolster that, that IT support. Um, so, so working um, to to do that is is really our um, is a, is a key goal of ours, and and we'll be moving forward. Excellent, and, and, and you know the the things too that we always see with clients, a lot of conversations around compliance in general. So the ability to get instructions and rules and regulations for how to administer some of these programs that you mentioned earlier. Um, but also the ability to, to deliver in a timely manner. Um, and I know one of the big things that you guys are focused on is streamlining, you know, some of the federal compliance that comes out, some of the standards that the states and other jurisdictions have to meet. Um, so can you give us a little bit of background on that and some of the efforts that you're doing there? Absolutely. There are really some key tenets of uh, what we call cross-cutting standards um, um, in federal compliance that, um, exist within HUD and are, are kind of um, in HUD's wheelhouse, but also outside of HUD's wheelhouse. So the, the key ones are environmental, labor, relocation, fair housing, and lead-based paint. And those five areas uh, need to be addressed, particularly on CBG and home programs, um, any type of built environment, um, those type of um, uh, policies need to be enacted and, and included. Uh, we also have Section 3, which is HUD-specific, um, and it was, it's, it's been around for a number of decades, um, actually included in the Housing um, and Urban Development Act in the late, late 60s, but, but it's essentially a, a policy that is um, supportive of uh, low-income residents in um, the project service area and ensuring that they have access to um, employment opportunities if they if they so choose and are available and um, in a position to, to work on those, those projects. So um, we are eyeing um, a couple of things uh, specifically. Uh, there's rules that have been uh, issued on the environmental review through NEPA um, as well as uh, labor standards through an updated Davis-Bacon uh, rule, which both efforts should provide, provide relief and, and manage processes better for stakeholders, which not only include our members, but the con contractors that are on these projects, um, consultants, um, the sub-grantees, which are typically um, small rural um, uh, jurisdictions, localities. So we're waiting a final rulemaking on uh, both the NEPA and uh, Davis-Bacon rule, but in the interim, we're working on ways that we can coordinate these standards across agencies. So one approach is uh, for 
projects with multiple funding sources. So for instance, if you have a CDBG funded project, which also includes um, EDA, Economic Development Administration, or US, USDA Rural Development funding, that whichever funding source has the largest amount of funds, um, that environmental review or that labor standards, that Davis-Bacon review, can um, one review can apply and therefore the other funding sources can um, essentially use that, that review and not have to duplicate that process. And it's something that uh, we believe that HUD has the ability to um, uh, actually put into place uh, with the current regula regulatory framework, um, but it needs to be clarified. It needs to be, there needs to be some better guidance out around it. So we're working with HUD on that currently um, and, and believe that that's, we'll be in a better place on that moving forward. Excellent. I, and I think one of the things that I'm hearing you know, when we talk about advocacy and, and just conversations, can you talk a little bit about what that actually means? So when you say you're working with HUD, can you give us a little background? Is it meetings? Is it uh, writing letters? What, what actually is happening when you're trying to influence some of this legislation or, or better understand it? All of the above. On When, when agencies uh, issue these rulemakings, whether it's HUD or um, for the Davis-Bacon uh, Rural Department of Labor or for NEPA Rural, the um, uh, Office of Environmental Quality uh, or Council of Environmental Quality, excuse me. We do issue, issue formal comments through letters. Um, qu quite frankly, recently, um, I've just been, I've had really a kind of a organic conversation with the HUD Davis-Bacon office on some of the changes that, that we are eyeing and we're asking for and, and some needs around um, that, that those labor standards. And, and that's really kind of where that conversation has existed and, and really made some progress on that front is just connecting directly with um, HUD staff. So I think um, it's a combination, it's all of the above. We wanna make sure that we're on record with um, some responses, but, but also just, having to continue to, to communicate with the staff that work on these policies and processes every day and are really the experts. And I know one of them that you're, you're close to working on and having conversations around is a disaster recovery bill. Uh, so can you give us just an update on some of the things that you're advocating for with that respective bill? Yes, uh, a priority of costas and something we've been working on um, really for the last couple of years, is um, advocating for the Reforming Disaster Recovery Act. And um, for the folks at home that want to look this bill up, it is um, S2471 and HR4707. So this bill is incredibly important to uh, advancing CVG disaster recovery resources, both now and moving forward. And um, a few things that, that this bill would do. One is it would authorize CWG disaster recovery, uh, the CWG disaster recovery program, which um, has existed on a temporary basis going back 30 years to 1992 um, in Hurricane Andrew and aftermath funding being available there. Um, the, the legislation would also install timelines for both HUD and grantees to follow. Uh, the bill would establish a long-term recovery fund, um, so something that would be annually funded that um, resources could be provided 
ahead of a storm or or in the immediate aftermath of a storm to grantees to use for their recovery efforts um and 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 not having to rely on on um uh kind of uh, random uh supplemental appropriations which is kind of what happens now um the bill also allows hud to provide initial startup grants to state and localities so essentially just kind of uh, uh, grant funds to kind of get them started on administrative processes and then also the bill improves data coordination which is incredibly uh useful and and necessary uh, to both assess damages and populations affected and property um, damage, but also um, to move forward on, on developing an action plan on, and how to determine um, kind of all the key uh, needs around recovering resiliency efforts post-disaster. So um, that bill has passed the House. It um, Thankfully, it, it passed as a uh, National Defense Authorization Act amendment in July. Um, so really, it is up to the Senate at this point if um, they are going to take up that that uh, amendment version of the bill, which is a little different from the initial version, um, or if they're going to proceed with their uh, initially introduced bill. Um, the bill is uh, has received eight co-sponsors in the Senate. Uh, it's a bipartisan supported bill. Um, we believe it is not controversial. It's it's uh, pretty clear cut on what it does. So, um, but but to be determined on what the path is moving forward, um, we do know that these disasters are not going away. They increase in intensity and, and are becoming more common. And just as like a key fact here, um, so far in 2020 alone, uh, 2022 alone, excuse me, there have been 38 separate major disaster declarations and we're not even through to the end of the year. So that gives you the sense of the extent of, of disasters and, and where we've um, experienced those uh, recently. Yeah, and as we're talking right now, there is a Hurricane Ian down in uh, in Florida uh, that's obviously happening. Any insights into any funding gonna be wrapped into this this bill that's, that's kind of working its way through for appropriations for the year in Congress? Right. Hurricane Ian is is right there um, in in Southwest uh, Florida as as we're talking, and um, it's really the short answer is to be determined on on the amount of funding that may be provided in response to that that event. Um, but it's way too early to tell what the damage is, and um, folks will be picking up and um, uh, determining that themselves in the coming days and weeks. Um, I think it's this is important to note just kind of the differences between the different disaster recovery framework and, and the agencies engaged. So, you know, just to note, FEMA is that uh, provides that immediate relief crisis management role. Um, the Small Business Administration supports business recovery um, during and uh, in the immediate aftermath of storms. HUD's role is is. A little different. They HUD and the CBGDR funding is is that long term unmet 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 needs in housing, business, and infrastructure. Um, so what we have this week, and actually a bill working itself through um, ahead of of the end of the fiscal year, is the con, uh, continued resolution, which includes two billion for CDBG disaster recovery. Um, there's also some other disaster relief funding available in there as well, but. Um, $2 billion for CDBG-DR, and um, that is for both 2021 events 
as well as 2022 events. Um, likely, we will be looking at another supplemental disaster um, bill attached to the annual appropriations bill uh, in December. But again, it's too, too early to tell what that amount is. Um, and we'll, we'll have a clear picture, I think, in the coming weeks about um, Hurricane Ian and, and other disasters that um, maybe be past and past, present, future um, before the end of the year. We, we obviously talked a lot about DR and uh, FEMA being the immediate response and, and HUD and, and the disaster recovery funds for longer term uh, response. There's also a couple other funding sources that you guys are making recommendations are a lot of our clients, you know, CDBG and home are the main or primary funding sources that they're using to address the unmet needs in their community just on a regular basis, absent of disasters themselves. Um, what uh, what should we expect or what are what are we thinking about from a regulatory perspective um, on CDBG and home itself? For CDBG, there is a rule that is currently underway. I mean, underway in the sense that it hasn't been published yet and there's still some final reviews going on um, internally. But through the FY23 budget document, and I believe this was mentioned in the prior years, HUD's prior year budget document as well, but um, there were a few uh, items noted for the CBG rule. So um, one is streamlined reporting requirements for um, state and local administrators. Uh, another is that this rule will focus heavily on uh, using CBG, enhancing CBG for economic development purposes. So um, there's a mention of expanding the definition of slum and blight, um, installing several eligibility changes, clarify, clarifying citizen participation requirements, and then also modernizing public benefit standards. So it, it, we're awaiting that rule. Uh, have been told it, it's it's coming. It's coming down the pipeline at some point, but um, still unsure when that's going to be available. Um, for home, the home coalition that causes a, a part of, and we've been a part of a working group that has put together um, a list of recommendations. And we ended up sending those recommendations to Secretary Fudge uh, last month. And there are 34 total recommendations. Uh, and, and so they're pretty extensive on uh, some things that we we see that uh, HUD can change and in, in really opening back up uh, home and, and the rulemaking. Um, Overall, the goals of this effort is to allow states and localities to do more with the home resources, um, streamline the administration, align uh, the uh, home program with, with other HUD programs as well as other federal programs. <clears throat> and it's important to know that HUD and the White House have cited home in their housing uh, supply action plan, which came out earlier this year. Um, we all recognize the need, the, the critical need for more housing, uh, particularly more affordable housing. And uh, home was mentioned in the context of having uh, their rec their recommendation to um, look at regulatory and legislative legislative reforms that could improve some outcomes. So we're waiting on a response from HUD on the recommendations uh, that that the Home Coalition sent, and uh, what further engagement that that we can provide there. Excellent. The you know the other other thing that obviously has been top of mind for a lot of. Our clients, uh, but I'm sure a lot of states as well, 
know, as the past uh, two years with the pandemic and all the funding that's been coming through. Um, what, what kind of role are you playing, your, your organization playing within the, you know, CARES, coronavirus, state and local fiscal recovery funds, things like that that are being distributed to the states that are really purposed for community development themselves? Can you talk just a little bit about that and the role that you guys see yourselves playing there? Absolutely. Uh, Costa has been engaged on the, the uh, coronavirus response and recovery from going back to February, March 2020, um, when we were just starting to understand the impact of this pandemic, uh, what would become a pandemic at that point. And I was communicating with, with Hill staff on developing that, uh, the, the CARES Act legislation, and particularly on what CDBG can and can't do um, and, and how it could uh, be and ended up being a vehicle for some federal resources to accommodate that, that response. Um, so CDBG received $5 billion in CARES Act funding for um, to what was labeled to prepare, prevent, and respond to coronavirus. And what we have seen so far is um, every state and locality has uh, handled it differently, but overall uh, the funds have been used primarily for public services, which includes kind of business assistance early in the pandemic. Of course, the um, protection equipment was vital to keep businesses open. Um, so um, some of that was funded through those funds. Um, also, housing assistance, emergency rental assistance, for instance, uh, those funds were used for that. And then, and then um, uh, addressing food insecurity, so helping um, food banks um, with with their needs. Also, having the funds spent towards economic development, again, business assistance, as well as infrastructure projects um, for kind of longer term, more um, mitigating or or um, helping to uh, ensure that there's social distancing in in places. So. This is not, uh, so overall, the, the funding has progressed, it's advanced uh, in that respect. Challenges, though, have existed far and wide um, in implementing these funds. So while there is this $5 billion for CBG that is for coronavirus response, um, Congress also dedicated hundreds of billions of dollars to state and local governments through both the CARES Act and the uh, American Rescue Plan Act. And um, those funds have a certain timeline, which are um, uh, need to be spent within a matter of a, between a year and four years um, that they overlap. And with the CBG funds, um, there's also this, this kind of piece, which is the changing dynamic of the pandemic, which as we're all aware of the pandemic kind of changed course. Um, we didn't have a vaccine, then we had a vaccine, um, took, took some time to get that out. So that was kind of working through that. And then also um, now, particularly on infrastructure projects, there is not the availability of contractors and materials to accommodate those projects um, like there used to be. So um, grantees are grappling with these circumstances, trying to get the funds out. We're um, um, working with HUD now on requesting some additional flexibility on those funds. And, um, you know, the timelines installed in 2020 are not responsive to uh, current circumstances. And so we're trying to get, uh, ensure that HUD works with us on providing that flexibility needed to get the funds um, 
expended, also helping states through peer-to-peer -peer collaboration and training. Um, just had our annual conference where we've hosted discussions on what states need to, to in order to be successful in implementing the funds. Um, a number of our members as well are administering the state and local fiscal recovery fund. So it hasn't been um, narrowed to just CBGCV, but it's also extended to um, the treasury funds for um, state and local fiscal recovery, as well as the emergency rental assistance and the homeowner um, assistance as well. Yeah, certainly, certainly a lot going on. And I want to revisit something you said earlier around, you know, best practices around making sure that uh, you have the IT systems in place. Obviously, that's that's music to our ears. But other best practices that people should be thinking about. Uh, we've, we've talked a lot about the money that is now being made available to all of these different agencies. And obviously, besides from compliance, one of the fears is not being able to spend it in a timely manner and having it recaptured. Mm -hmm. Can you provide some just some best practices, some thoughts that you have on how to efficiently distribute this money um, while doing it compliantly as well? Absolutely. Specifically to affordable housing, which, again, we're we're in a housing crisis. I mean, we're 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 lacking millions of units of housing. And um, that is that is overall um, certainly a big piece of that is affordable housing and, and ensuring that low-income households are um, uh, properly uh, supported in that respect. Um, but the, the, what we're seeing just is uh, in order to successfully respond is to be flexible on the type of housing that those funds are being put towards. Um, conditions change. They change pretty quickly as, as we've witnessed the last few years. And so um, being nimble to accommodate both home ownership units as well as rental units and kind of what the market is and what um, um, this kind of uh, market conditions uh, allow for is really important. Um, also to look at how developments can incorporate the latest technologies and advancements, um, particularly to lower costs for the end users, so for the residents. So in things like energy efficiency and materials and construction methods, um, finding ways to bring that cost down so that um, residents can uh, really uh, be properly housed at a, a rate um, that they're comfortable with that um, is, is not going to um, put them in a, um, a serious pinch um, with their income, um, but is also going to be a, a stable housing unit moving forward for, for them and their families. Um, I'll note on disaster recovery that both the administration and, and, and Congress as well in, in dedicating these federal resources to uh, recovery efforts, um, it, it's important to know kind of the two buckets for that recovery and, and how it works. So there's a recovery piece, but then there's also the resiliency piece. So for the recovery piece, fo the, the focus has increasingly been on supporting vulnerable populations and, and as it should be, um, folks with the, the um, uh, kind of least uh, uh, available ability of income and, and property ahead of storms are going to be the most impacted um, at, during and after the storm leaves or, or whatever the natural disaster might be. Um, so in, in order to successfully serve those populations, ensuring that you're engaging stakeholders in, in the community, uh, ensuring that the capacity is, um, is there on the ground, to make that connection. And then also uh, overall, make sure 
people are represented in their communities and where they live. And, and I think there's a number of stakeholders that can uh, facilitate that. The other piece of this on resiliency, as I mentioned, mitigation efforts. Um, there's an emphasis on when you build infrastructure, uh, you're rebuilding infrastructure or housing, put it back better than it, it was and make sure that it's strong enough to withstand future events. Um, water and fire damage can be limited uh, in, in certain construction methods and in ways that the housing or infrastructure is built. Um, and then also, there's a way to go about it, but a number of states on the coast have picked up that they're going to continue to experience these disasters and the federal funds can be used as, as in a way to leverage state and local activities on resiliency. So, um, you know, federal government invests this amount of money that encourages the state and locality to do the same. And um, they have a standing presence to take on uh, current and, and, and future needs um, you know, as, as they go along. Excellent. Couldn't agree more. I mean, we see that consistently with our neighbors across the board, trying to coordinate, you know, at the state level with also, also the local funding um, and making sure that the funds are working hand in hand. Um, one last question for you here. The, uh, everybody likes to know, you know, what the future looks like for their budget. Uh, I know we're working through that right now uh, in Congress. What uh, what are your insights? What are your feelings as, as far as what it might look like for the next fiscal year? Absolutely. I mentioned that we have the, the federal uh, funding year expires uh, September 30th. Uh, so we have um, until Friday to have some mechanism in place to continue continue federal funding past September 30th. Um, there is continued resolution that is working its way through uh, between the Senate and House this week, and that that bill will um, fund its stopgap funding through December 16th. Um, so far, the House and Senate bills that have been introduced and considered, and and in the House's case, passed, um, provided kind of some slight increases for the programs that we work on, CDBG, home, homeless assistance. Um, but it, it's not a substantial amount of, of funding. It's, it's um, certainly below what advocates have asked and requested on, on those program accounts. Um, but it's important to note that there's, um, as with FY22, FY23 will include earmarked funding um, for what has been called economic development initiative grants um, under at, at HUD, and they're kind of under the community development account. And so that is a new uh, process that we're all trying to navigate a bit better. But essentially, state and local governments, as well as nonprofits, can approach their congressional member and um, provide some requests on some funding needs that they have. And so that's kind of where that lives. And that's a new funding mechanism. Um, so certainly going to good projects and out there. Um, however, it, it's um, certainly uh, limits us more on some of the other accounts um, when, when that funding is available. So, um, and then I'll mention as well that unsure where we are on the disaster recovery funding, but um, we'll see what the rest of 2022 has in store for us, and then we can um, better determine, um, or Congress rather, can better determine um, what those funding needs are and, and what additional resources may be needed for um, disaster recovery efforts. Excellent. Well, thanks, Josh. Again, appreciate your time. 
certainly uh, all the insights that you provided us today, as well as all the advocacy work uh, that you guys do on behalf of, you know, just typical housing, economic and community development programs, not even just at the state level, but all the things that trickle down to the, uh, the cities and the counties that are administering similar type programs. Glad to be here with you all and, and um, um, look forward to working together moving forward. Sounds good. Natalie, when can our listeners tune into the episodes and, and how can they access it? Sure, yes. Be on the lookout for an announcement of when the episode will go live on Neighborly, Neighborly Software's website and social media channels. Um, the podcast will be, um, will be live and distributed on Spotify, Stitcher, and Radio Public as well. So everyone stay tuned. Thank you.